Hello, listeners, book lovers, and friends. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. So why create a podcast about the first page? Well, all master storytellers have a secret. Their first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader, hooking you. And for those of us intrigued by how master storytellers work their magic, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to the world's most beloved authors about the craft. And today, we have the delight of talking with Karen Wynn about her debut novel, Our Little World, published by Dutton in May. Karen Wynn received her MFA from Farley Dickinson University. She holds a doctoral degree in nursing, which factors into her writing, and we're going to get there later in the podcast. She was born and raised in New Jersey, and Karen now lives in Boston with her husband and two children. Our Little World is her first novel. Karen Wynn, welcome to page one. Thank you so much, Holly. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. And just for listeners so they know, Karen recently showed up in San Francisco at a wonderful independent bookstore in Chestnut Street called Books, Inc. So I had a chance to meet her with my daughter, and I'm just so excited to talk to you again today. Thank you. It was so fabulous to meet you in person. Yeah, it's so fun when you you finally put the face, you know, it's real. (laughs) And after all this time on Zoom and everything over the last two years, it is really nice to go, especially to go to a bookstore for a book launch. And I absolutely love Books, Inc. So I was so happy to see that you were there. And it's a big deal for a debut author to have a huge poster in the window. So I'm just going (laughs) to let everyone know that... Our little world was hugely put right in display, and that's just so fabulous. It means that your publisher, Dutton, is so behind you. I'm just so excited for you. Thank you. you. This debut novel is a coming-of-age story about two sisters in the 80s, which has been described as chilling, masterful, compelling, and beautiful. And I know our listeners are really eager to learn from you. So let's jump into your debut novel, Our Little World, which is now available on Amazon and libraries and in bookstores which I encourage all of you to visit as we emerge from the pandemic. I came across the 22 in 22 initiative by Zibby Books and I'm pledging to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. So I'm going to probably ask all the guests on here to, when you're going across the country on your launch, definitely count it as your visits for 22 bookstores in in 2022. And I hope listeners can do the same and find a copy of your wonderful new book, which is going to make great summer reading too, and all the other books you'll hear about today and on prior episodes of the Page One podcast. And because we avoid all spoilers on Page One, especially for people who are writing suspenseful books and thrillers, I'm only going to read your book summary, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, great. July, 1985. It's a normal, sweltering New Jersey summer for soon-to-be seventh grader B. Cochise. Her thoughts center only on sunny days spent at Deer Chase Lake, on evenings chasing fireflies around her cul-de-sac with the neighborhood kids, and on Max, the boy who just moved in across the street. There's also the burgeoning worry that she'll never be as special as her younger sister, Audrina, who seems to effortlessly dazzle wherever she goes. But when Max's little sister, Sally, goes missing at the lake, B's long-held illusion of stability is shattered in an instant. As the families in her close-knit community turn inward, suspicious and protective, things in B's own home become increasingly strained, most of all with Audrina, when a shameful secret surfaces. 
With everything changed, B and Audrina's already fraught sisterhood is pushed to the limit as they grow up and apart in the wake of an innocence lost too soon. So for listeners, our little world has such a strong opening and it has two really strong openings, which is really rare. We have a wonderful prologue and an equally powerful chapter one, which I've asked Karen to share with you today. So Karen, will you go ahead and read the opening of the book, the prologue? Absolutely. Great. Prologue. I see whispers of my dead sister. I see her when I am driving through the fogged up window, her brown hair entangled in my windshield wipers. I am tempted to pull over and carefully remove each hair strand as if untangling a knotted necklace. One, I suppose, that nodded due to my carelessness. I see my sister's small hands clasped around the same passenger pole I am clinging to in the crowded subway. We are all packed in, our fingers curling around the pole, one on top of another in a tree ring formation. But I instantly recognize the creases in her knuckles and the way her right pinky sits at an odd crooked angle, the result of a bike accident when we were young. I see my sister in the pile of still dead leaves from the red oak tree in our parents' backyard. Audrina is a lurker, which surprises me. She's always there on the periphery, sitting, thin ankles crossed, in the waiting room of my being. When she was alive in her short life, she was vibrant. I can't figure out if death has subdued her or if it has given her some sort of calming new age wisdom. There is also the very real possibility that she is just confused, trying to figure out what happened to her, what happened to us. Wow. (laughs) I'm not sure if anyone listening has questions, but you have absolutely woven this with so many questions. And I always say when you turn a question upside down, it's a hook. So (laughs) I'm excited to break this down, but I'm going to ask you to also now read chapter one, the beginning of chapter one, because I want listeners to hear just how these two dovetail in terms of what you're setting up here with the voice and the story. Absolutely. Chapter one, my sister isn't the only dead girl I've known and not the first either. Before Audrina, there was Sally, little Sally Baker. My sister knew her too. She knew her just as long as I did, which wasn't very long not even the length of a summer. It was June, 1985, when the Baker family moved into the green shuttered house across the street. I was 12 years old, the same age as Max, Sally's older brother. Audrina, my sister, was a year younger than we were, though you wouldn't have thought it. She was always acting older than she was even back then, sneaking into our parents' bathroom to use our mother's makeup and perfume pilfering her earrings and rings to stash away and try on later. My sister loved to get dolled up and gaze at herself in the mirror. Pipishka, father called her, an old Hungarian term of endearment, meaning girly or sweet. I was not a tomboy, but felt like I needed to act like one. Audrina had stolen the looks in our family, a belief I knew didn't make sense, but was convinced of nonetheless. She had father's green eyes and her hair was a shiny light brown that turned gold in the summer. My hair and eyes were so brown, I thought of them as brown brown, 
and my hair didn't change in the sun. Just beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, just wonderful. What an incredible, powerful debut opening. So let's break this down a little. I am always so curious, you know, after it's all said and done and everyone's probably sick of their pages because they've read them thousands of times. You know, when you chose the prologue, where were you in the writing process? Did you know you were going to start with this? Because oftentimes that's not the first thing an author will figure out. So tell us the story behind this and the struggles. I'm very curious. I actually did start with the prologue that line, I see whispers of my dead sister. That was there from the start, I would say. Right. It was such an invitation, right? To like beg for more like what, okay, where do we go after this? I see whispers of my dead sister. If you're not hooked by that, just first line, (laughs) I'm not sure what can hook you. And it's funny because at one point I got questioned on that from somebody, not my editor or agent, but a reader or one of my writing group members or a workshop member or something or other. And they were just like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) You can't see whispers. And then I'm like, well, I know, but it's metaphorical and what it conveys. And I tried to like change it. I played around with it. But I was like, no, I'm going back to what I wanted. I, I want, I see whispers. I like this idea that you're sort of like, because I want to think of a whisper. It's like the whisper and then the silence with it, right? Yeah. And, and, and the like, essence of the whisper. The essence, right? Exactly. That's it. So that's what I was getting at, right? And that sort of secrecy. Yeah. With that. Well, it's so compelling. I understand like in a workshop setting, you'll get that (laughs) feedback and which is really important for anyone listening who's on their own journey right now. Um, If you are workshopping a piece or, you know, you've had this experience, you really need to trust your gut on these things because this opening line, I see whispers of my dead sister. It makes me think you give us all the visuals. I see her when I'm driving through the fogged up window and just the fog that imagery, I now connect it to a whisper, even though it's not, I know whispers supposed to be heard, but not everything's literal, right? Yes, exactly. You have to trust your intuition sometimes. Yes. So I am curious about that. I mean, it develops a lot of muscle to defend something when it might not be logical, but it's absolutely in your being where you know full well that that line can't change. Yeah. You know, especially as a first time, or, you know, when I was writing this, I was unpublished, didn't know if it would get published. Right. So it's, it's hard because, you know, you have people weighing in and, and you're not maybe as confident as a writer now, say with my next book, I'll feel a little more confident with my writing. And, but it is difficult when you're unsure. I think the lesson learned is take it all in, but ultimately go with what you want. But I will also say if I had had multiple people question me, that line might not be there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was going to say if, if too many people were in, it might've killed it. It might've removed it from the beginning. But I think when you're submitting it, obviously you're published by the largest publisher in the world, Penguin Random House, Dutton is an imprint. It's a big deal, right? And they've seen thousands of manuscripts, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands that have been submitted. And if no one push back on this line, you have to feel really good that you stood your ground. Yes. And it's so great to find an agent and find an editor, obviously that understands your book. Right. And that understands you as a writer. It's like everything coming together. In the most Absolutely. 
And we'll get into that because I know that in every book, there's a lot of revision and we can talk about that incredible collaboration that you were blessed to have with your team at Dutton. We'll get into that later, but for those listening, just, you know, looking back at this opening, when Karen opens with, I see whispers of my dead sister, she's now following with these images and you can't help but see it. You're right there. And I love the depth and detail here. I'm tempted to pull over and carefully remove each hair strand as if untangling a knotted necklace. And one, I suppose it knotted due to my carelessness and we don't want to give anything away, but that line clearly Karen, right? Is packed with so much subtext and it is so foreshadowing the relationship and what's about to happen. And I love that it's your third sentence. (laughs) Thank you. I wanted to certainly foreshadow and allude to their relationship and B's feelings about their relationship and and about what ultimately happens. Right. Definitely. And then you get this sense too, the voice of the narrator, something is just weighing so deeply on her conscience and which is very much tied to the plot, which we can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) But I just love the foreboding, like what you're building up here. And when you see all the way down to the creases and the knuckles, right? I mean, you're, you're a mom, you have two, two children, you know, it's, it's like your mind opens up to all the details of these things, especially for kids, right? The things that we forget about, but I love that detail too. And that her right pinky sits at an odd crooked angle, the result of a bike accident when we were young. And that line also raises a question because you wonder, hmm, is that how she died? Right. Right, right. So (laughs) I, I just, it's just masterfully laid in. You just keep teasing us with questions. Like it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, but I'm not going to tell you. Right. And then thank you so much. Yeah. Well, and then the last line, I see my sister in the pile of still dead leaves from the red oak tree in our parents' backyard. I mean, just haunting. It's just, it's haunting. And then you start that next paragraph, which is Audrina is a lurker. I mean, I'm getting chills actually, as I read it right now, (laughs) because just that sense that she's a lurker and it goes back to the whispers. There's a felt sense of the spirit in the story and which haunts her and gives the tone for the entire book. It gives it its gravity that it needs to pull this through with the most suspense that you could muster. It's just incredible. Wow, thank um, you so much. Yeah, well, it's fun. I love looking at these and pulling them apart. And then, I mean, it is such a strong opening. The other thing too, I know people can't see this because we're talking about it and it's hard to see on the page, but There's also something that when writers are doing this and they do it well, they're really aware of the proportion of what's on the page. And she has a really compact opening paragraph. And then she has these little, just like insertions of talking about Audrina as a lurker. And then the second, there's three sentences there, actually four, but there's a rhythm to them. There's a staccato kind of sense of you're just kind of laying this in. And that last sentence in that little mini paragraph says, when she was alive, in her short life, she was vibrant. And you get that sense again of like the pining for wishing she could have been like her, but wasn't. And it's just bubbling up to the surface to play with, which you just totally nail it. And that very last line of this, there's also the very real possibility that she is just confused trying to figure out what happened to her, what happened to us. 
in that that's like, I call it a gavel moment, you know, where you can just, <laughs> it's like, like, drop the mic, right? Done. No more, no more is needed. Like I'm in, right. And I'm hoping everyone re- like hearing this is going to go, okay, damn, that's, that's strong. I want to, I want to read it too. Um, but I love that. Right. It's like what happened to her and what happened to us. Boom. So yeah. now having said that and hoping to tempt the people that are listening to this, will you read to us chapter one? Because now we're going to ratchet up the suspension even more. It's unbelievable. Sure. Chapter one. My sister isn't the only dead girl I've known and not the first either. Before Audrina, there was Sally, little Sally Baker. My sister knew her too. She knew her just as long as I did, which wasn't very long, not even the length of a summer. It was June 1985 when the Baker family moved into the green shuttered house across the street. I was 12 years old, the same age as Max, Sally's older brother. Audrina, my sister, was a year younger than we were, though you wouldn't have thought it. She was always acting older than she was even back then, sneaking into our parents' bathroom to use our mother's makeup and perfume, pilfering her earrings and rings to stash away and try on later. My sister loved to get dolled up and gaze at herself in the mirror. Pipishka, father called her, an old Hungarian term of endearment, meaning girly or sweet. I was not a tomboy, but felt I needed to act like one. Audrina had stolen the looks in our family, a belief I knew didn't make sense, but was convinced of nonetheless. She had father's green eyes and her hair was a shiny light brown that turned gold in the summer. My hair and eyes were so brown, I thought of them as brown-brown, and my hair didn't change in the sun. It's just wonderful. Thank you. I want to talk about the hook for this story and the premise, and it's not going to give anything away because I'm very protective of your story, (laughs) as we discussed already. You have actually a personal connection to the story, which I didn't know when I was reading, but I was surprised. I wanted to ask you about it here on the podcast when you were speaking at BookSync. And I think it's so important for readers and also other aspiring writers to kind of mine their own experiences for story ideas. And would you walk us through kind of the inception of this, the hook for the story based on what happened to you? Sure, absolutely. In the story, Sally Baker, who moves in across the street from Boston, goes missing at the local lake one summer day in 1985. And the town of Hammond, the the town in the story, is a fictionalized version and anagram of Mendham, New Jersey, my hometown. And the lake is based on a real lake. In the book, it's called Deer Chase Lake, but it's actually a lake called Sunrise Lake. When I was younger, I was swimming at Sunrise Lake and I loved to swim underwater for long periods of time. My mom used to call me a fish. And one day I was swimming there and I came up for air and I saw everybody exiting the lake and wasn't sure why, but I followed them. The lifeguard must've blown the whistle, but I didn't hear it because I was swimming underwater. And I was looking for my mom, trying to find her on the beach. It was a little chaotic. And then I saw her. And she's standing near this lifeguard, this probably very nervous teenager lifeguard who is literally grabbing little girls and being like, is this her? Is this her? 
And then I realized that they had emptied the lake looking for me because my mom couldn't find me. And I just remember the look on my mom's face. Like she was so panicked and it was just such a moment for me in my childhood that I remember so vividly. I always just thought it was such a great starting point though, for a story. Like what if I or someone else had gone missing that day? It's one of those things where it's your own survivor. It's not survivor's guilt, but it's like you're surviving something that could have happened to you. And when you said it at Book Sync, and again, today, it just gives me chills because I, you know, as a parent, Mm -hmm. I also grew up, uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. So we had a lake that my grandparents had a cabin there and we would go and it would drop off. It would go from like 10 feet and then to like 400 feet because it was this huge quarry that had these natural springs. So, and you would feel the difference in the water, you know, when you were at the beginning, it was warm, warm, and all of a sudden it's freezing cold and you would know, and and they had it kind of blocked off, but I always felt like it was so spooky. I thought like the Loch Ness monster lived in that lake, you know? So there's something about a lake. Yeah. Especially of a lake. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of dark. And then it's reflecting all of those, those trees around it. And you described at Book Sync, you described it as like this dark forest that was all the way around, which shows up in the book, right? That forest, that woods, those woods are there. But, you know, you can imagine as a parent, just not knowing where your kids, it's it's one of my great, it was my greatest nightmare of you yes. know, when my daughter was really young, just not wanting to helicopter, but especially around water, like making yes. sure my eyes were on her at all times. You do such a great job rendering the confusion from a child's perspective of what's going on. And then it kind of dawns on you of what is going on, but it's unimaginable because you're a kid and you're holding that point of view of the sister, you know, of B who's older now telling the story. I wonder how the story would have even taken place in your mind if that hadn't happened to you in real life, you know, it wouldn't exist. (laughs) Yeah. Or she yeah. would go missing another way. <laughs> right, exactly. And so also with this, I know that you had mentioned too that you're really kind of into the darkness. You had shared on an Instagram post, this is where I do my homework. And if I can quote <laughs> you, you said, you have to be willing to dig deep and probe the dark side of human nature. Complexity is what makes people interesting. I'm drawn to books and TV shows that explore long-held secrets and examine the effects of tragedy. Is it just something that you've always been curious about? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I did really have this kind of magical, idyllic childhood. It was a great childhood. And then, and me, because I'm a nurse too. So I've kind of seen the worst things happen, right? Like I see the unexpected illness. I was an ICU nurse at one point. You know, I would see motor vehicle accidents and trauma. I've always just been very aware, perhaps, that like things could turn very quickly in a dark manner. I was just always interested in exploring that. And and yeah, and and to me, that's interesting. (laughs) Like I mentioned, I do like the darker TV shows and my friends joke around that, you know, I always kind of have like the dark sense of humor. (laughs) Like I, um, my husband's always like, Hmm, do I really know you? (laughs) So I think I was just really fascinated with the idea of kind of taking this tragedy And putting it in kind of like my childhood setting and then exploring that and seeing what happens. And and this novel is very much about the reverberations of this tragedy of Sally's disappearance. You know, it's not a, a mystery per se. It's this coming of age story with this looming mystery 
And it's really about the exploring like these relationships. Like you, you mentioned earlier, my prologue, how things were kind of like bubbling to the surface, right? And I love that you said that because that's what I try to achieve in this book. Like this idea that there's all these things that were kind of bubbling and then this tragedy occurs and they all kind of bubble to the surface and erupt and really nobody's ever quite the same. And things take a dramatically different course if Sally hadn't gone missing. Yeah. Well, and also, so maybe you can explain this to your husband this way. So he doesn't look at you cross-eyed and say, okay, so maybe if, I don't know, you can totally tell me this is absolutely wrong, but I'm, Uh I'm sensing that maybe what it is, it's not the darkness so much like things happen, right? I mean, we see horrible things on the side of the road. You're a nurse, you've been exposed to all this, but what I'm sensing here is that what you're drawn to and what you are working on now too is it's not so much the darkness, it's how people respond, the mm. human response to darkness, the human response to the tragedy and how yeah. that shifts the dynamic in relationships. Absolutely. Because that's kind of what your entire book is about. This is about a reforming constellation of characters in relationship to each other because of this meteor that lands at the beginning of the story, which is Sally Baker's disappearance. And you're not trying to solve it, the aftermath and the reverberation of that incident affects people long after it happened. And I think that's fascinating because that's true. The body's gone or whatever's happened to it, but how are people dealing with it? And how does the gravity of the situation affect things moving forward? And how does it disrupt the balance of I don't want to say power, but the balance of the status quo prior to that meteor hitting their world, you're doing it so well here. You get into these nuances of relationship, which is not easy to do, you know? Yeah. And I think that that was so well said, Holly, I'm going to write that down later. (laughs) No, but um, I think that they also think it's about how the tragedy, like people's response to it and then what it reveals about themselves, right? And what it sort of brings to the surface in their own recesses of their mind and their own sort of inner turmoils and actions and absolutely. You're listening to the page one podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As the author of four novels and a writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much. Hook the reader. So I thought to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. I started the podcast this past spring, and after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. Writing takes courage and courage needs a community. So I'm opening up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of page one's master storytellers. I'm so excited about this. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered. And page one exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both a known and unknown creative talent. Maybe that's you. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpain.com backslash community. 
That's Holly Lynn Payne, H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E.com backslash community. And now back to the show. Something very tragic happened in our school district very recently. A, a young child died in my daughter's class, oh, um, actually during hard. class. Yeah, it was a seizure. And just hearing how the children are responding and, you know, they're, they have all kinds of support at the school right now, but, you know, it's one of those things that that's a meteor that's hitting those kids. They're never going to forget that. And it's just interesting how people respond. Right. And you, you nail this, the wild thing about awful, dark things that happen, how people kind of co-op their emotions to like suddenly pretend they had a better relationship than they did with the person who's gone because the person who's gone almost takes on the celebrity status, you know, it's fascinating. It is. And you nail it. It's the same curiosity with the darkness. Our lives are as much light as they are dark. It takes a lot of courage to kind of examine that in a story like you're doing here. And yet there's these elements of the time and place that are also really fun, like the eighties. You're setting up a world that doesn't give away the plot, but we get to talk about your choice of the time frame in which you're setting this. Yeah, absolutely. So just circling back to that point though, about the idea of like being close to someone who passes away. I mean, it's, it is interesting, right? So in today's day and age, there's social media, right? So people might post about someone who's passed away, almost like sort of their death makes them feel like they were closer to them than perhaps they were there's a sort of interesting desire to be close to tragedy in a way. I don't know why, what it, what it is, but this interesting phenomenon. So in the book, obviously B is there when Sally Baker goes missing and she becomes the not popular sister. Her sister Audrina is like the popular pretty one, but B finds herself suddenly the recipient of attention that she's never had before because of Sally Baker, because she was there when Sally Baker went missing, because Sally Baker lives across the street from her. All of a sudden, people who never paid her any attention, like the older neighborhood girls, circle of school friends are calling. They want to know what happened. What was it like? Tell us what it was like that day at the lake. And then also like what's going on right now in the Baker household. It was so fascinating. She finds herself enjoying this attention. Right. And even though obviously she's very shaken by Sally's disappearance and she continues to perversely sort of enjoying this attention. But awkwardly so. I mean, she confesses that she's aware that it's odd, right? I mean, yeah. and yet it's also very weirdly human. This is what I love that you're not afraid to go in and examine all that and play with it because it is a very honest human response to something like this. Yeah. But yeah, Twist, so yeah. twisted and perverse for sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, So, yeah, so the 80s piece, it was such a fascinating time um, in the 80s to set this novel for so many reasons. So it's 1985. In 1984, about six months before the novel comes out, the missing kids on milk cartons rolled out. So, you know, where people would be eating cereal and like looking at the milk cartons with the missing kids. There was, it was such an interesting time. There was like stranger danger. There were these high profile missing kids cases like Eaton Pats and Adam Walsh. It was just a fascinating time in terms of studying how missing kid cases would have been handled. There was structure that was starting to emerge for it. But in 1985, when Sally Baker went missing, it was still very much a disorganized process the local police were likely kind of slow to respond. There weren't like 
really clear protocols. The FBI rarely got involved. Missing children efforts were very much directed and guided by the family of the missing child. Only in 1982, three years earlier, had there even been a national registry form for missing children. So prior to 1982, they had no idea how many kids went missing in a year. There was no information, reporting, accounting. So yeah, it was just kind of a very interesting time. I remember there was a guy kidnapping people where I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'll never forget. It was a green Pontiac. And, you know, in our, all of our minds, uh, you know, we were the, he was just plucking kids off the street, right? Yeah. That's how, but That's, I remember that was a stranger danger, right? It was a stranger danger. And it was so real that I remember if I saw a green Pontiac and of course, like every green car became a Pontiac to me, I was right. like, Oh my God. And I would just make a beeline to whatever the closest neighbor was and act with absolute confidence and pretend that was my house. And I was like, I'm just going to go straight for the front door and I'm going to open it because right. what else am I going to do? You know? Yeah. Um, but it was, it was scary. I mean, he came really close. We had one of my friends in school, his sister, she got away, but this oh. green Pontiac, you know, so oh it, it is, it is fascinating, but I'll never look at a green Pontiac the same way. I, I know. <laughs> Sorry, Pontiac, but it's true. So I would love for you to talk a little bit too about the research, because this is another thing that I love doing this podcast. Cause when people write to me and they say they've been enjoying it, I think they're learning a lot about fiction and, and the craft of actual storytelling and where people have before dismissed it because they think, Oh, you can just make up anything. It's like, Oh no, no, no. You have to do so much research. Yes. And so this seems to be fun research in terms of the details of the eighties, because people, you know, everyone loves to kind of have an eighties party. I am curious if you can walk us through a little bit about that because you're setting up a world, you know, it could have taken place at any time, but you really did choose the perfect one based on everything you just said. But tell us a little bit about the research for those who might not understand what it actually takes to create a world like this. So, you know, I think for me, the eighties, I had to understand the pop culture of the time because these are seventh grader kids. So that required everything from understanding the movies and rewatching films from that time to the music to significant both pop cultural and and significant events in our history. So a lot of like Googling, um, a lot of just thinking about stuff and understanding, um, even like the house decor I wanted to get right. Um, so I, I noticed that you did, you did get it right. <laughs> so I like, I would, I, I remember Googling a lot of house renovation projects and I would look at the before pictures cause nobody wants the eighties, right? That's brilliant. That's a yes. great, that's brilliant. Oh my God. I love that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. And call waiting was just starting to roll out. And I remember too, I posted a Facebook group asking about what do you guys remember when you got call waiting, but you know, even call waiting was just. Do people even know what call waiting is? <laughs> right, for those cooler? people who, who are really young listening, call waiting was a service back in the day where you would hear that someone was calling and you have to say, hold on, I have another call and you click over to get it. And then you'd hope that the other person was still on. And then if you were, you know, if you did it well, you'd hang up and then you would wait 
And then that other person you were originally talking to should be on the line, but oftentimes they got cut off. It was also bizarre. Otherwise, if you were on the phone and you didn't have call waiting, you would just get a busy signal. Like you couldn't reach somebody who was already on the phone speaking if you were trying to call somebody. Right. Um, And it was incredibly annoying because if you didn't get it, it would just keep clicking on. You'd hear that there was someone trying to interrupt your call. Um, so yeah, so call waiting. So really understanding that era in a number of ways, there's a couple of medical elements that weave their way into the book and the eighties is like pre worldwide web. So I couldn't find a lot of stuff from a Google standpoint. So I actually, I have access to medical journals through my nursing affiliations. I did like some pretty heavy research from the medical standpoint, kind of going to primary sources and making sure that I understood these diseases that weave their way in and making sure that I was accurately depicting them and treatment options and, and all of that. Um, yeah, also I mean, relying on my nursing background as well from more recent times, taking care of patients, but wanted to make sure I was getting that right. Obviously you did. And that's the kind of rigor where it's not just enough to Google you need to go and literally hold the journals in your hand and look for the information and how things were treated, what people knew about them. And for those listening to, it it was wild for me to hear this coming out of Karen's mouth uh, at Books Inc. when she spoke here in San Francisco, but she's like, yes, the eighties are considered historical fiction and the whole room (laughs) burst into laughter. And it made every one of us who grew up in the eighties think, oh my gosh, we're really that old now. (laughs) I know it's historical fiction. And then even like I have, I just pulled out right now because I'm at my desk here. I have a whole folder and I, and I wanted to save these documents because as you go along and you revise, sometimes there's so much going on. You're like, Oh, is that right? Did I capture that? Well, and I just making sure that I had it all documented and backed up for my own sake of mine as well. I even have this investigator's guide to missing children cases for law enforcement or officers locating missing children from the newly formed in the eighties national center for missing exploited children. And I printed out that whole thing from 1987. It's fun research, but it's also, you want to make sure that you are getting this right. If you don't get it right, some reader will sting you because they'll let you know. There's always someone that like looks it up and and points it out. So yeah, this process is very painstaking and it has to be because you're creating a world. That world has to hold up, you know, together. And so I want to jump into, you know, this is your first, your first book. Mm-hmm. Um, will you talk to us a little bit about the writing process for you and then also the revision process? Because this is also something that I think isn't exactly understood about when a book comes out. And I just interviewed someone for the podcast last week, and she was saying that she had no idea. And if she had known, <laughs> she's not sure that she would have been able to do it. Oh, but, you know, she had read Stephen King's on writing, which I know is one of the books that you have recommended in terms of yeah. your go-to books on the craft. And he always recommends, you know, just put it away, put it in the drawer for a couple of weeks. She had to put it away for a couple months because there was so much that she needed to address. She literally thought the editing process was like someone was going to hand it back and add a comma or, you know, something is grammatically wrong. It's like, oh no, no, no. This is like a renovation. This is almost like, this is why it's yeah. called a revision because you have yeah. to see it from a different way. And then some of it just gets totally gutted. And how do you handle that? Because a pro just 
takes it. And that's what we have to learn. We have to thicken our skin as authors over the years to understand also and denote like and understand the difference between a good note and a bad note. You know, there are bad notes and they can really derail a work. So how did you learn that? And how did you, how did you develop the muscles and the endurance to like survive it? Cause it's not easy. Yeah. So I think that the way I learned it is that I've just, it's just like anything else. The more you you do something, the better you get. Right. So through just the practice of workshopping, I, you know, I've been in a local writers group since 2009, at some point you develop a thick skin and you know, not to take things personally. And you also learn how to hear criticism or critique and pull the pieces that you want from it and discard the rest. And sometimes I wouldn't necessarily agree with the feedback, but sometimes it would make me think on something and that would also lead me in a different direction. So there's the processing of it, selecting out what you want, and then also what you're doing with that, how you pivot from that. I think a lot of us have that one or two or three people that we absolutely trust with the notes. Do you, did you have that? And was it within the group or was it outside of the writing group? Yeah, I definitely have my writing group. Absolutely. And then I also have my husband. He's great. Like he's very logical and rational. And so we would talk about this book all the time and he wouldn't even like, he read it, he's read it a lot, but even just over dinner, we would be talking about, I'm sure he would want to talk about other stuff, but I'd be like, no, can we just like circle back on that point? I love to run things by him because he would always bring in the practicality aspect, like the motivation aspect, like, okay, but why is this character doing that? And then I'd have to like go and think on it. And then also, yes, I have a very dear friend who is a nonfiction writer who I absolutely trust her opinion to. And it's great to get like somebody who does kind of when you're done with your manuscript, right? There's like the line edits. And the thing is, too, is like when you're working in a writer's group, they see your manuscript all the time, right? So it's also nice sometimes to get and that's that speaks to like the putting the manuscript away for a few weeks or a few months. And then you're able to look at it with fresh eyes. It's also helpful to have a new fresh reader once in a while to look at it and to hear. I always think it's so helpful when you get a fresh read like that to listen to like the broader strokes of what they're saying, because that is what you need to listen to, to really understand like what they think about it. I remember one of my old writing teachers, I had had her do like a manuscript consult before I was like ready to, to query agents. As it turned out, I wasn't ready to query agents. (laughs) I mean, she had a lot to say, but I mean, the one thing that she really said to me was, what is going on in this house, Karen? Right. She's like, the interesting thing is what is going on in this house? And I returned to that so much during my revision process And she was right. Like the story, the interesting pieces weren't like Sally Baker necessarily or the town. It was like this house, like this relationship between the sisters and relationship between B and her father and the mother. And I remember I was like very deflated actually after that. I realized that I had so much work to do. And I I then put it away, I think for a couple of months and then I took it back out. And I remember at that point, I kind of did like a massive like rewrite. The beginning was always the same. That beginning did anchor me because I would actually often return to that beginning, that prologue and that first chapter to be like, okay, just remind myself that this is the tone that I wanted to carry throughout the novel. But then I really just dug deep and I rewrote, but like, I would look at my old manuscript or like pull some portions from it, but I really did a massive rewrite. 
It takes a lot of discipline to give it space because in the space where you think you're not doing anything, subconsciously, there's a lot that's connecting and then you have to see it with new eyes. And that's literally the revision, right? It's that you have another vision for it. And then good for you that you, you weren't so wed to it. I love that this woman gave you that note of like, what's happening inside the house was the note that you listened to and it made all the difference. And to be honest, that was really what I took away from the whole manuscript consult, right? Really all that mattered. Will you tell the listeners here the story of the title? Because there was a massive revision in the title and that is a really hard one. And I (laughs) applaud that you were able to gracefully say yes, but I think it's compelling. And please, we share that story. Absolutely. So our little world was not always our little world. But actually, I think after, because we talked about this at Books, Inc., and then later I was thinking about another title it had even been, which is kind of funny. So, and of course, this passage got completely cut, but there was one point where B was thinking about Sally going missing and all the stuff happening and things that we were like turning in our head and almost like morphing into one. And it was like secrets and Sally and Audrina sleepwalking. And it came like, and then I kind of ran, ran on the sentences together. So then it became secret walking Sally. And this is like B's thought process. And that, that paragraph now appears nowhere in the book. Right. So at one point when I actually queried my agent, it was called secret walking Sally. And when she read the manuscript, she was like, this sounds like a country song. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my gosh. When I that's saw great. this, I was like, is this a country? Like, what is this? And she's like, oh yeah. And then um, she's like, we need to change that title. I was like, okay. And then of course I can never, ever think of that title ever again. She just ruined it for me right there. You realize now, like in, in another book, maybe the one that you're working on right now with all the women, there's gotta be some country singer that's, that writes. I know, like, right? Walking totally. Sally, just, just for fun, because yes. you, you can't, you can't throw it away. It could be a great country song. One I never knows. Make it a fictional country song in my next book. That is a fantastic idea. I think, you know, just like repurpose it, repurpose the humor, right? (laughs) Yeah. Then at one point there's this passage that is, does exist about push pull relationship of the sisters, like the love, the hate, and the idea that when you're young and you have these fights, they feel like world wars, right? Um, Cause they're so, the, the, they just feel so big. Um, Cause when you're young, everything just feels so big, right? So the title at one point was called Our Little World War. And then my now editor said that it sounded like maybe historical fiction title, which I also agree, you know, the world war. So we were trying to figure out titles for a long time. And we went back and forth like a few months there, uh, my editor agent and I, and we tossed out a number of different titles. And from the start, my editor was like, what about just Our Little World? And I like pushed against it. I was like, no, I just feel like it it feels too quiet. Like it doesn't convey like all like the turmoil that's going on. And and then I think I'd actually done like a massive revision that based on her notes at that point, my editor. And I was just like, it just, and then at some point I'm like, you know what, this just feels right. Like our little world, even though maybe it doesn't have all of the drama that I was hoping it fits the book in so many ways. Well, and it's completely congruent with your developmental consultant, whoever gave you the notes and and that one you took away, which was what's happening inside this house, right? That's the little world, right? Yeah, I hadn't even made that connection, but yes, exactly. 
And then what's so great is that with the cover art, with this typical suburban neighborhood that just looks like very safe. And then there's this crack that just runs straight up through the cul-de-sac and then like into this beautiful blue sky, but it's all cracked. So our little world with this crack, you realize that not everything is what it appears to be. It was exactly. the first thing that struck me. I was like, yes. like I, I saw it. What is it was, going on in this little world? Exactly. And it was yes. like clearly fractured, yes. which is what happens to the world. Their emotional state, everyone's fractured because of yeah. what happens inside this story. So I came full circle on the title. And then I think that this cover, which is just incredible. Um, they just did such an incredible job. It's so perfect. Like it just, it's, it's what's going on in that family. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's just so lucky because it doesn't always happen that way. So they really nailed it. I would love to hear what are you currently reading? Is, is there anything that's like grabbed you authentically that you could share maybe sure. an opening paragraph? Yeah. So I mentioned I've been in a writer's group since 2009 and my friend Betty Yee, who's another Boston based writer recently published her historical fiction, young adult novel. It's called Gold Mountain by Betty G. Yee. Chapter one, they came in the darkness of early morning. The hammering at the front door echoed through the courtyard and rolled up to the second floor where Tam Ling Fan's family slept. It startled her brother, Jing Fan, awake and made his coughing start up again. Across the hall, Ling Fang pushed her silk quilt aside and thrust her feet into her slippers. She lit a taper from the brazier burning in a corner of her room and stepped into the corridor. Baba passed her, a lantern in his hand. That's fantastic. Well, I am so grateful for this conversation. I'm thrilled Thank and excited you. for you. I'm really happy to know that you're working on your next book too. I am. Yes. I so enjoyed this Holly. I love talking about the first pages and the craft. It was such a pleasure. So thank you. You've been listening to page one, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like page one, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love too. If you want to learn more about my writing coaching or books, you can find me at hollylynnpain.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Holly Lynn Payne. That's H-O-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-P-A-Y-N-E, hollylynnpayne.com. Thank you.